you open us up in prayer, please? Amen, yes. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time. I pray, God, that this class, that we will learn from this class, God, that we will learn from what you have imparted uh, with wisdom and knowledge onto Pijo. I pray, God, that once we uh, uh, have received that, we go out to the streets, God, that we put it to practice and that we do it all to the glory for you, oh God. I pray that you continue to move in our hearts, move in our thoughts, oh God. We pray for this class. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful prayer, my brother. Thank you for doing that. All right, let's go to our notes. We're going to be in week three today. Week three is the message of the apologist. I am so thankful that we are able to do this. This is Metro Praise International 301 class. It is a class dedicated towards training our elders and deacons, continuing education for their discipleship. And we are excited to do this class. They had a choice between this and spiritual gifts. And of course, they chose the class that I was least familiar with, the one that would require the most amount of work on my part. But it is a blessing because this class, Presuppositional Apologist has, Apologetics, has really taught me more than I knew in the subject. And this is an old adage that they, that they say, if you want to learn something, try to teach it. And I would even say that's true with our children. If you want to learn something, try to teach it. You want to learn the Trinity? Try teaching your children the Trinity. You want to learn about creation science? Teach your uh, husband or wife about creation science. Take turns doing Bible studies. Take on the lessons of the things you want to learn. And it's been a joy for me. We're out, uh, out of John Frame's book, Apologetics. I was just listening to him today. I'll be posting up a link to his interview that I was listening to as an optional uh, thing to do throughout the week so you can hear from our author. He's quite a gracious man. He really explains uh, the difference in the methods and how he doesn't see the classic or the evidentialist necessarily as wrong. He just doesn't see them as doing it the most effective, especially in this generation where we need to uh, go to the foundation and the presupposition. So I was very impressed by his graciousness and as kind as he was. He was a very kind man and he was a very gracious man. All right. So today is uh, chapter three, the message of the apologist. We're going to start with our opening scripture here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we've talked about before, presuppositional apologists, apologetics rather, is what we do as presuppositional apologists. Presuppositional means that we come and, and address the issues of presuppositions. Everybody has them. Everyone has to start at a circular point. Something has to be their axiom. Something has to be their foundation. For the naturalist, it's going to be reason. For the Muslim, it's going to be the Quran. For the Hindu, it's going to be the Vedas. Uh, for uh, the Catholics, it's going to be primarily the Catholic Church. For the Buddhist, it's going to be the sayings of Buddha. Uh, onward and onward. And for the socialists, it's going to be the writings of Marx. And so for us as a Christian, as Christian apolog apologists, what we're going to do is use the scripture as our presupposition. Now, all presuppositions are not to be treated the same. There's only one presupposition that can answer the uh, be the foundation, be the foundation and the answer for all other truths. The presuppositionalist is not going to always argue in a circle. 
The presuppositionalist is going to have a presupposition, which may be called a circular argument, and then from there address every other argument. And once again, everybody starts with a circular argument. A circular argument is something like this. Reason is true because reason is true. That's what the naturalist has to argue. The Muslim has to argue the same way. The Quran is true because the Quran is true. The Buddhist argues the same way. Uh, the teachings of enlightenment from Buddha are true because they're the teachings of enlightenment. The Vedas are true because the Vedas are true. They teach us the truth of the gods, etc. And so all of us have presuppositions and we need to address them. Now, as apologists, we go back to uh, our scripture in Peter where it says that we need to give an answer, apologia, to those who have questioned the hope that we have within us. And we need to do that through the word of God. So our presupposition is the word of God is true because God said it's true. Now, at this point, we can bring evidence and proof uh, to compare presuppositions. Which presupposition doesn't contradict itself? Which presupposition is the final answer? So if someone says reason is true because reason is true, well, there's a simple question there. Well, where did reason come from, and how do we know re we're reasoning correctly? How do we know what a 12-inch ruler is unless we have a 12-inch ruler to compare it? So we start off with God said, and God said his word is true. Now they may say, well, how can you know God's word is true? Well, we can look to the prophecies. We can look to the resurrection of Jesus, which was the apostles' main evidence, was if Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, then everything he said was true, and Jesus affirmed the scriptures. So why do I believe in a young earth 6,000 years old? Because Jesus believed in a young earth. Why do I believe the Old Testament is to be taken literally with people like Noah and Moses? Because Jesus believed that. So our alter, ultimate criterion for the book is the man. And most uh, systems will come down to that, a book and a man, you know, a science book and a man, etc., a prophet and, and their writings, the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, etc. And so we settle on the Word of God, and we say, let's go toe-to-toe -to -toe from there, and let's show that the word of God is superior, that without the word of God, everything reduces to absurdity, ad absurdum. Everything goes back down to absurdity. Now, some people may say, well, then who created God? But God, in our definition, is uncreated and a necessary being. So oftentimes people will want to uh, compare the universe to God. They'll say, everything you say about, the, about God, I can say about the universe. You say God's all-powerful, I can say the universe is all-powerful. Uh, God is everywhere, the universe is everywhere. But the thing about the universe is that it's not necessary. There could be different uh, attributes to this universe. So this universe, the way it is right now, is not a nece necessary universe. And then we could picture a universe not existing. So we can picture another metaphysic place as a place called heaven. It doesn't seem irrational to believe that there are spirits in a place called heaven, and that would be outside of this universe. But God is a necessary being in every single universe. And then not to mention, what in a universe would make a universe start and stop? To create and to destroy. Let's say universes are on endless cycles of creating and destroying. This would require a mind. This would require something to cause the universe to start and begin. So once again, God is greater than the universe, and God doesn't need an explanation from being uncreated as the universe does, because to say the universe is uncreated is to create a contradiction. 
And so God is the necessary being, uncreated creator, that is the first cause of all causes. And now, once again, we go into which God, which book, and we take the Bible and the, and the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. So this is going to be our message. And Paul said here in Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. So all Scripture that we have, and we could talk about the canon at another time, 66 books, is what God has given us and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So whatever is right to do, the Bible will help us to do it. Now, somebody may say, well, what about when the Catholic Church restricted science with Galileo or Copernicus? Well, they weren't doing what was right. So we should never be afraid of scientific truth as Christians. The Bible should lead us and give us the foundation to do scientific work, just as it should do with medical work, etc. And so the Bible trains us in all righteousness, not just spiritual righteousness, but all righteousness in, in the physical world, the spiritual world, and the age to come. And it says that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work so that we can do the things of God. So God wants us to do every good work equipped by his word. Who are going to be the best politicians? Those who are servants of God, thoroughly equipped by the word of God, who will be the best doctors, who will be the best inventors, who will be the best apologists, who will be those that defend the Christian faith and our presupposition, those who have been trained by the word of God in righteousness. They are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, last week, I noticed that some of you uh, weren't aware of the solas of the Reformation. Well, after the Catholic Church came into power and began to seize control over the churches and have its hierarchy with the Pope being in charge around 700 AD, for about the next nine, uh, 900 years, they were imperialist, fighting also with the Muslims. We believe the Muslims started it first, but we were going back and forth with them in crusades. And long story short, the church became the ultimate authority and not the word of God. So the reformers, led by people like Martin Luther from Germany, uh, began to lead a reformation against the Catholic Church, protesting their false doctrines and their wrong authority. And one of their main mantras was the five solas, sola scriptura, which is all of this is Latin. And that was the popular language of theologians back then, which no one spoke it outside of the theological circles, but they kept that, kept that ancient language alive. And that was one of the problems is we wanted to put the Bible, uh, to translate it from Latin into the, the, the modern European languages at that time. And Martin Luther put it into German and people were getting burned at the stake for doing this. Uh, but uh, sola scriptura, only the Bible, sola Christus, only for Jesus, Sola fide, only by faith, sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola gloria, for the glory of God. And so those are the main pillars of the Reformation. And so those should be the main pillars of us as apologists. We should uh, seek after keeping God in his right, not in his right place. We should have God in, 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 uh, in his truth in the right place in our hearts. So that's what we need to do with the scripture. So that's going to be the basis of our message. And I hope that you did your reading. We're just doing one chapter uh, a week right now. And so it's pretty easy to keep up with. And so here we go. Our message, number one, as a presuppositional apologist, uh, coming against the presuppositions of the unbeliever. And this is the non-Christian, wherever they may be. We're going to use the Bible. 
The apologist's message ultimately is nothing less than the whole of Scripture applied to the needs of his hearers. So I noticed there was a little bit of confusion last week when one of you asked the question, well, what do I do if someone doesn't quite you know, doubt the existence of God? Maybe they even go so far as to believe in the, you know, the Christian God and the Trinity and Jesus, but they have these other problems like morality problems and they, and they want to you know, affirm same-sex marriage, etc. Well, the answer is simple. We give them the word of God. We give them the word of God in every situation. So what do I give? Uh, let's go through these. What do I give the atheists? What do I do for them? I preach and apply the word of uh, the whole of scripture to them. What about the person in a cult? Preach and apply the whole of scripture to them. What about the lukewarm Christian? Preach and apply the whole of scripture to them. What about the person in another religion? A Mormon, a Muslim, a Hindu? Preach and apply the whole of scripture to them. What about a Christian with wrong beliefs and practices? Preach and apply the whole of Scripture to them. Any further scenarios you can think of? Preach and apply the whole of Scripture to them. So what we want to understand is that the Bible, the Word of God, as Jesus himself said, is the rock on which we build our entire life on. Everything is built upon the Word of God. Anything that is against the Word of God is sand. And the Bible also says in Jeremiah that anything that's against the Word of God is like chaff. It gets uh, burned up. It's like pebbles getting smashed by a hammer. They get broken into pieces. So let the Word of God do its job. The Word of God did its job in your heart. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. It does not return void. It is like seed sown along the path and sown among the weeds and all these various circumstances. But the word of God never changes. Whatever will happen God, that God wants that word to do, it will do. And when it comes to salvation, because I do believe in synergism, and we'll get into a little bit of a talk today about Calvinism and the differences we have with them, because we're non-Calvinists, we're Arminianists, and we have a view of Molinism when it comes to foreknowledge. But we believe that the word of God in all of those uh, ground, scenarios, ground scenarios of the sower, the word, the seed is always the same. The only thing that makes a difference is how the heart receives it, but even then, God's ultimate plan will be done, whether or not people are saved. Save, uh, salvation is our choice to believe, but whether or not we believe, the Bible says he doesn't deny himself, and he's going to fulfill his purpose. Okay, so our message is the Bible, and then the second thing is, our message is Christianity as a philosophy. So when you take the Bible as a whole, and you put it into philosophy, which is uh, philio, the love of, of Sophie, uh, the love of wisdom, Sophia, what we're going to do now is come up with a Christian worldview, a comprehensive way to view the world. And that's something that you can compare to how I put on my glasses. I now see the world through my glasses. If my glasses change the colors of the real world, it wouldn't matter how many times you showed me this, the thing that you knew was red. If everything I saw that was red turned to blue, it would never make a difference until I changed what I'm viewing, put on another set of glasses. And so what we need to do with the Bible is attack and then give them the correct worldview. That's what the Bible says in Corinthians, that we tear down those lofty thoughts, those lofty ideas, those pretensions against the knowledge of God 
and we destroy those arguments. Not the person, like Ephesians says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Uh, you know, we're wrestling against the devil and the false knowledge that he produces. If you look at the garden with the serpent and, and Satan with Jesus in the time of temptation, it's always the three things that he comes at us with. He gets us to doubt who we are. He gets us to doubt what God has said, and he gets us to doubt the plan of God. And you'll see those three temptations in the two most important places in the Bible, in Genesis and then in Luke, uh, you know, in the Gospels when it when it comes there, Luke chapter 3. And, and so what we need to do is have a Christian worldview. Now, what is sad, as, as I've talked to you about this before, and you can uh, see this with George Barna, and I even have one of his books here, and you can get these stats online. Uh, the Evangelical Recession is one of those good books. Uh, here's another book by George Barna, The Boiling Point, Monitoring Cultural Shifts in the 21st Century. Uh, what we find out through these studies, about three to four major studies have been done on the worldviews of even professing Christians. And what we find out is that even professing Christians uh, only about 4% of them have a Christian worldview. Now, uh, we're going to get into some of the details here from John Frame but the, in our book, but the questions that they asked them on those surveys were really basic. Like, did you see, do you see the world as there being one God, one way to God through Jesus Christ? Salvation is only by him, a real heaven and hell. And the Bible's the word of God, no other book. And uh, only four out of 100 affirmed all of what we would call a Christian worldview. So let's get an idea of worldview and how it applies to us. The world, the worldview of a Christian or Christian philosophy gives us an account not only of God, but also of the world that God made, the relation of the world to God and the place of human beings in the world in relation to nature and God. So a worldview is going to determine how we look at animals. Can we eat animals or should we be storming into grocery stores with blood on our hands, upset that there's meat at the counter? Well, if you see the world as created by God and animals being a gift to God, then being a vegetarian is only a matter of choice for your diet. It's not a matter of spirituality and it's not being cruel to animals. Now, I do believe that we can be cruel to animals because the Bible tells us that we can be. And so there's a way that we need to treat an animal, especially the kind that we have in our in our daily lives. In that time, that it was horses and uh, ox and so forth, and you know, uh, and even the animals that we want to use for food. We should do it in such a way to honor God's creation, not worshiping it, uh, not saying we can't eat it, but we're going to do it the right way. And then, as we know in our culture, uh, we have uh, the culture has no problem with killing unborn children, children, murdering them in the womb, but yet they want to storm into a grocery store. Why? Because they have the wrong, wrong worldview. Uh, why does the world today now promote polyandry? This is the new thing. I just saw it on my news feed today. Another uh, major uh, article came out. Uh, people want to have multiple partners, what used to be known as orgies. And we would say before that, you know, when I used to read Galatians chapter five, and it said that those who have orgies will not inherit the kingdom of God, that this was like unheard of in the 90s. Maybe that was something that would happen in a pornographic setting, but they want this to be mainstream now. Uh, you know, just two or three men, two or three women all living together in a communal setting, raising their children together, uh, being bisexual and so forth. Uh, this is becoming 
and in an increasing measure to be normal. And that's because they see the world through a ungodly worldview. And we could be here all day, but those are some of the examples. Now, our book gives us uh, basically five things here, uh, or rather four things that give us the basic of uh, the basic idea of our worldview. Uh, it's really five, and let me see why I missed it right here, because I have five listed in my notes. It's uh, philosophy, metaphys metaphysics, etymology, ethics, and good news. One, two, three, four, five. Yep. Yeah. And then here I have listed four. Which one am I missing? I have metaphysics, epistemology, epistemology, the trinity. Okay, for some reason I didn't add the trinity into this, but we'll go through this more. It should be the trinity is number three, then values and five, the gospel. Okay, so here's the five things. Metaphysics, the theory of fu the fundamental nature of reality. Epistemology, the theory of knowledge. Uh, epistemis uh, is the a word for knowledge. And then um, ology is how we study it. And then uh, it should be the trinity, the nature of God. Uh, three values and ethics, and that's how we understand the world in, in the sense of beauty and morality. And then five, the gospel, good news about Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, as a Christian, we're going to compete with the differing worldviews that are out there. We're going to compete with Platonism, Aristotleanism, uh, empiricism, rationalism, skepticism, materialism, monism, pluralism, process thought, secular humanism, new age thought, Marxism, and whatever other philosophies there may be, as well as other religions such as Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. So before we go on, I just want to make sure that we're clear about our message. We go to the scriptures and we have the worldview the scriptures give us. Our presupposition is that the Bible is right, because God, through Jesus, says it's right, and therefore we need to go and defend it against these other presuppositions, anything that's outside of the non-Christian uh, presupposition, and be willing to engage them and show them that their belief system leads to absurdity. It leads to contradiction. It is not a complete worldview. It is not in the same level as the Christian worldview. So we do want to do that. We're not just going to say we're right because the Bible says we're right, end of discussion. No, we're going to say we're right because the Bible says we're right. And then the Marxists may say we're right because Marx says we're right. But then we're going to go to Marxism. We're going to go to Christianity. And we're going to show them that Marxism cannot do the explanatory scope. Write that down, explanatory scope. It will not explain things to the scope that Christianity will. Okay, let me come out of this real quick, and you guys uh, ask any questions that you may have just about the basics of our message, the Bible and the Christian worldview. We're good. All right, let's keep going. We're going to go to those five components of the Christian worldview. And we'll go through them basically as the book gives it to us. There's only one part where I had to adjust the book, and that was on the subject of Calvinism. So, you know, I had to get a little 
get a little detailed in there when they went that direction. But uh, he did it graciously. It wasn't uh, that major of an issue. Okay, so we got metaphysics, okay? Number one, metaphysics is the theory of the fundamental nature of reality. Now, some people may deny that there's anything outside of the physical realm. They may say there really isn't anything that's metaphysical. Everything is physical. Well, once again, we have to challenge that presupposition, don't we? We have to say, how do you know that everything is physical? How do you know that there are not things that have to do with uh, the nature of reality beyond what we know, such as the existence of souls, spiritual realms, and God, angels, demons, etc. Now, what also is included in there is the mind. So if they say, well, I deny everything that is uh, metaphysical, only things that we can believe in are things that we can test through science, then what we're going to say is the statement you just said, I am only going to believe what I can test in science. Is that a physical object you can test in science? And what they're going to see is it's not. So once again, they have a basis of learning what is true about the natural world that they cannot prove with the natural world or in the sense of their, uh, in, in their five senses and with materialistic tests and procedures. So we have just showed them right there that whatever we just did in communication through sound waves, through language, we have just shown that there is something metaphysical behind the physical. Yes, I moved a physical mouth. I made physical words come forth from my vocal cords, etc. But you understood it not based on instinct, but you understood it based on having a mind that can comprehend it. And so that once again goes into what we know as dualism, the difference between the mind and the brain and the mind being metaphysical, being more than just the brain, being what it you being what the brain, the mind being uh, the brain being what the mind uses to interact in the physical world, but the brain not being the source of the mind. So the mind is like a driver in a car. And the car is like a brain and all those neurons are like all the parts of the brain. And the mind uses them to function in a physical world. Now, once again, what, um, what presupposition gives us the best evidence to having a mind and to operate it in a physical world? Well, we go to the Bible. And so the Bible easily trumps materialism, easily trumps uh, logical positivism because they can't even prove logic by using uh, things like science. Logic must just be out there somewhere. Math must just be out there somewhere. If you remember, we talked about what, uh, uh, sir, uh, uh, what Albert Einstein said. The most inconceivable thing about the universe is that it's conceivable, you know? And so we run them back to an answer or a question they don't have an answer to, and so we say, why does logic work? Why does math work? And so we get to metaphysics.
the fundamental nature of reality. Now, there are here um, four major things that he gives us, uh, I believe, here in, uh, let me see, is it four major things? Yes, I believe it is. Oh, I know what I did. I know what I did, guys. Okay, here's my mistake because I transferred my notes over here from uh, my PDF into this. There is only four components of the Christian worldview. When I put up the Trinity and had to bring it over into the blog form, I had moved it over as a separate point, but it's supposed to be the fourth point under metaphysics. So I will correct that as we go on now. So under metaphysics, there are four important things that we need to know. God as the absolute personality, the distinction between God as creator and his creation, sovereignty of God, Molinism. And as you can see, I had so much stuff I had to post here. And then the fourth thing, that's where I lost track, is the Trinity. And then that's why our major categories are the same as what I had here originally in the notes. The four things of our Christian worldview that we'll discuss is metaphysics, epistemology, values and ethics, and the gospel. So I hope that's not too confusing. So when we look at God, the absolute personality, God is absolute in the sense that he is the creator of all things and thus the ground of all other reality. As such, he has no need of any other being. Remember we talked about that he has no need of any other being for his own existence when I just talked about the universe. The universe can't explain itself. It runs into other contradictions. So you cannot make the universe God, and that's why uh, Eastern philosophy will then fail too because they kind of adopt what well, Star Wars adopted their philosophy, but I think Star Wars can be our example. So Star Wars makes the force to be the universe and everyone's the you know, has, can have the force flowing through them. So God and the universe become like one that's called pantheism. Well, that runs into contradictions because it couldn't have started itself without a mind, without a will. It couldn't have caused itself. It would have no agenda. And yet it keeps doing things that are organized. So how is it organized? Where does math come from? I mean, um, an unorganized universe wouldn't have such principles as math and logic and morality and so forth. And then also just the absurdity of it is that now we have a mind and intelligence. And so to say that the universe doesn't have a mind and intelligence, yet somehow it's all powerful and uncreated, would basically make us greater than the universe. And that's why we have to say, no, can't make the universe God, can't do that. We need God making a universe. Makes more sense, right? And so nothing brought him into being. He always was. He's self-existent, self-sufficient. You can see all the scriptures there. Nor can anything destroy him. And that's what I was talking about before. You can see universes start and stop. And how would that process happen without a mind behind it? Somebody may say there's a universe creator creating another universe. What created that universe? And as I said before, you can't have an infinite regress because how do you ever arrive to the present? And we move forward. We see the universe coming from a beginning point, which they now call the Big Bang. I do believe it happened 6,000 years ago, but we see it expanding. And what they consider millions of years, God did in moments of time. God created Adam and Eve as men and women, not as babies. He planted, a whole, he made whole trees, not seeds. And so we are in a universe that is complex and shows the signs of age, but it's itself a young universe. It's just like Adam and Eve were young, but they looked as adults. And so no, no, no one can destroy him. He's always going to be. His existence is timeless, for he is the Lord of time itself. He knows all time. Space is equal with perfection. 
He knows all times and spaces with equal perfection, rather. In the words of answer four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So hopefully that gives you a bit of knowledge of God being the ultimate personality. Remember, God's a person. And that's why we're persons. And that's why all knowledge comes through persons. You don't see animals doing mathematics. And that's because, and they can be trained to do little things, little dolphins do stuff. But, but we can discover, just think about that, discover new things in math. Discover new things like Newton did about gravity. It's like, wow, how do we do this? Because we have minds. We as a mind made in the image of God, reflection of God, can interact with him in the creation and the world he made. That's what makes sense. You can't make sense out of us being able to do that otherwise. Uh, Platonists have tried to say from Plato that numbers literally exist and cause things, and logic literally exists and causes things without there being a mind behind it. So there's like information out there as if it were computer code, and it just runs itself. Same problem. Where did it come from? How does it organize itself? How does the number two know that it comes after number three? And I know I'm, you know, I'm oversimplifying this, but I can, I'm telling you, smart people can say dumb things when they suppress the knowledge of God. So when anybody asks me, why would Plato say something so dumb being so smart in all these other ways? Well, why is it right now we're killing babies in wombs saying that they're not human beings when we know by DNA they're human beings? Right. I mean, why right now are two people getting together of the same gender, calling it marriage, but it's really a mirage and have to get seed or egg from another person to, you know, if there's two men, they have to get an egg in a woman, you know, you know, you know, in virtual fertilization with her. Or if they're two women have to get a seed to have a baby and then they want to raise a family. It's like but and they call it a family, but they are not a family. They came from somebody else. That's somebody else's child, right? They're, whoever, you, these two same gender people aren't the parents of that child. And, and folly, absolute folly. What do they do? They suppress God, Romans 1.18, because they know about God in their conscience and creation, and they go off into these ditches. Okay, the next thing that we need to know about metaphysics is there's a distinction between God the creator and his creation. According to scripture, God is both transcendent and intimate. Uh, Imminent, imminent. You need to know those two words. Transcendent means God is holy and not like us, but imminent means he's close to us. And, the, and you'll see the difference here as I go on. His transcendence is simply the fact that he is radically different from us, holy. He is the creator and we are his creatures. And that's something that we all need to understand is that God has created us. We are his creation. It's not nature. Na Mother nature didn't create nothing. Mother nature is a myth. God created us and we are his creation. So everything belongs to him in that sense. He is absolute, as we saw in the previous section. We are not. Even his personality is different from ours, for he is original and ours is derivative. God is wholly personal and no way depends on the interpersonal. While we are dependent upon interpersonal matter, the dust, example of like what we're living in now. And even the breath he gave us in the garden, the spirit said, the Bible says, returns back to him. And forces us to keep us alive. So without God, we couldn't exist. He sustains all things, as the Bible says. God's imminence is his involvement in all areas of creation. Because he is absolute, he controls all things. Every molecule, every particle interprets all things, evaluates all things, evaluates all things. Because of his omnipotence, all-powerful, his power is ex exerted everywhere. Now, 
I am already running so short on time. I will not be able to spend time, you know, coming into disagreement with the author. We hopefully won't have too many of these, but he shot some shots across the bow, uh, put out his Calvinism, put down some Arminianism. And so I gave you what I believe is Molinism is a form of Arminianism, but it's a bit more sophisticated and helps draw out our distinctions. And I really just don't have time to get into it, but I would just simply say this, that we believe God is sovereign, that God knows all things, but he is not the cause of human decisions. And so the Calvinist basically has to make God, whether intentional or unintentional, the author of sin. And I'll just say this simply from William Lane Craig's arguments. Premise one, nothing that God unconditionally wills is evil. Premise two, God wills unconditionally everything that happens. Conclusion, therefore nothing that happens is evil. And so if God is ultimately in charge of everything, then that means he's in charge of hell. I mean, he's in charge of sin. And if he's ordained it, then there's really not a problem with it. If we do have a problem with it, then he's the one that authored it. So when they say things like limited atonement, Jesus's blood only was for the elect. Well, what about the non-elect? The Calvinist says, well, he just leaves them in their sin. But where did their sin come from? Well, it came from Adam and Eve. Well, why was Adam and Eve created? Because it was God's will. So ultimately, why are there non-Christians today? Because God willed there to be non-Christians. What do Molinists say or non-Calvinists? What do we say? God gave us choice, knew the choices. So God is responsible for giving us the choices. We're responsible for making them and the consequences that follow. Of course, I know I've stirred up Juan. He loves this. He's a Moody student. But uh, we just don't have time to get into it. But when I get into questions, you may ask questions. But let's just say it this way. Let's not go off into the weeds. Let's stay on the path. And let's keep it going as it applies to presuppositional apologetics. Now, what the, the presuppositionalists will probably say, the traditional one here, is that, oh, this started with Van Til and the Reformed guys you know, made it popular about 50 years ago. And here you Pentecostals or non-Calvinists are coming and taking it. You don't understand. You have to believe this to make sense of presuppositional apologetics. And I would just say, no, we don't. Uh, you understand the Bible, and it wasn't written from Calvinist point of view. All of church history, except for the Reformers, and this goes back to what we were talking about during the Reformation, those few that actually started the Reformation and made, made uh, church-run uh, governments were the Calvinists, and they actually persecuted the non-Calvinists. So it just happened to be those guys got in charge and kicked out everybody, and uh, the Anabaptists and the uh, the the Huguenots, or uh, uh, I don't know if it's the Huguenots, right? I just the name slipped my mind, but uh, some of the people at that time that they didn't like, they kicked out, and they even killed them at different times. So Calvinists became quite naughty. And uh, the Puritans were related to these guys as well. And the Puritans burned witches and different things. And sometimes the Calvinists think that the, the Puritans weren't good enough at making a church state. And, and it should have stayed that way. And they still believe in theonomy, which is the church controlling the state. And that's a whole nother set of weeds to get into. But let's just say it this way. What we do have in common with them, and so I'll be gracious as, as I believe he was doing his best to be gracious, Dr. Frame in the book, is that in one sense, we both agree with sovereignty. God's in charge. And so when we deal with metaphysical issues, 
The Lord is in heaven and he does what pleases him. Okay, so whatever the word says, it's settled. That's what we can agree with. And then the last part about metaphysics, which I wrongly numbered, is the Trinity. And that is that God is three in one. He is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The part from the Nicene Creed that's helpful here, you can also look up the Athanasian Creed, says there is one being but three uh, substances, or rather there's one being but three substances, or one substance and three persons. Uh, so the idea is when we say there's one being but three substances is that there's three persons. I believe, and I don't understand why it's, let me go to the Nicene Creed, because I always, I I've never... That- I think it's one substance. Yeah, so I'm going to go check. Three persons. Yep, yep. Give me a second yeah. here, Juan. I'm sorry, man. Let me let me do it myself just for a second because I believe I, I misquoted it here. But uh, I'm going to look it up just real quickly because I wouldn't have um, thought that's the way it was supposed to be. It could be what I'm first going to do is see if that's an issue in the book. If that was – if I miss – because I just was copying and pasting this. And so I want to do that first to see if he said that, and then I'm going to go back and look at the Trinity. So thank you guys for your patience. So in the section here on the Trinity, the Nicene Creed says there's one being but three substances, or differently translated, one substance and three persons. Okay, so now we're just going to go to the Nicene Creed. So this is what he had said, and I have never heard it said that way. So we're just going to look at the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of from the Father, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. Okay. Yep. So let's just call that a typo from him. So it should just be simply one substance, three persons. Okay. so I'll fix those notes. And so I don't know what he's talking about there. I've never heard that. Maybe that was just an issue that they they had in the the editing. Okay. so all three have the same divine attributes, all knowing, all powerful, all loving, all present, etc. Now let's go on here to number two. Uh, about our Christian worldview. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. It's how we learn things. Now, that's important in presuppositional apologetics because if you don't learn something the right way, uh, you're going to be off by the time you try to get to your conclusion. So if you have the wrong presupposition, how can you come to the right answer, right? So if, if you have the presupposition that there is no God at the very beginning, then you're not going to believe in anything supernatural. So it doesn't matter how many evidences I show you about Jesus raising from the dead. In your worldview, you live in a box, and it's impossible for something supernatural to come into that box. So what we want to do is we want to attack the naturalism or the the thought of uh, I'm against supernaturalism, that knowledge can't come supernaturally. So Jesus couldn't have been virgin born. Jesus couldn't have raised from the dead. We're we're going to say, well, how do you know that? And we'll discuss that as we go further on into the book, giving proofs for supernaturalism. But one of the greatest proofs for supernaturalism is once again, we're here. We're talking. No other worldview explains why we have a mind. 
why we have morals, why we have logic, etc. Did it come from nature? Is Mother Nature out there pumping out the laws of gravity somewhere for us? Uh, is Mother Nature pumping out the uh, laws of mathematics? You know, it makes no sense. But that's what we have to do when we look at a worldview. So God is not only omnipotent, but he's omniscient. As we have seen, he controls all things by his wise plan, hence he knows all things. And so that's where we come into this idea of God's sovereignty, by the way. It's just God is all-knowing, nothing catches him off guard. And so if we're going to learn anything, we need to learn it from him. All our knowledge, therefore, originates in him. Thus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. God is not only the origin of truth, but also the supreme authority for knowledge. And he himself is truth, according to the Bible. Authority is a part of his lordship. God has the right to command and be obeyed. He has, therefore, the right to tell us what we must obey. Fallen man wants to think autonomously, subject only to his own criteria of truth. Well, I'll believe whatever I want. I'll do whatever I want. He thinks he's free to ignore those of God, but he'll find out that he can't, right? He's going to find out in the end it didn't work. But God's grace takes us away from that bondage. Uh, God takes away our bondage to autonomous ways of thinking, which is folly, which is foolishness, and enables us instead to think according to God's word. So the Bible says in John chapter 1 that uh, Jesus is life, and that through his life comes the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so God is, through Jesus Christ, the light of our soul, the light of our conscience, and as Roman says, no matter how much as we try to suppress it, it's always there. And one day face to face, it will be revealed. But now through the preaching of the word, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can convict of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And that's what converts someone is when they accept the truth freely, accepting what God has said. They are the good ground on which the the word is sown. And then we as Christians, remember, sometimes we have to do apologetics with ourselves. I just saw an article that says a lot of Christians deal with doubt. I mean, I think we all do if we, you know, if we have questions. But remember, we've learned before, I've, I've talked about it in church, to doubt your doubts. Uh, uh, just don't take a doubt at face value. You know, you may be, you know, sitting in your bed one day and have a scary thought and be like, is there a God? You know, I don't know. I mean, have I been doing this all just kind of on my own? Well, you had a doubt. That's okay. You, you've had a temptation before, too, haven't you? Nothing strange about that. Well, what do you do with the temptation to go slap your neighbor? You just go off and do it. No, you stop and you go, no, that's not what I'm supposed to do. Well, what do you do with the doubt? You stop it. You put the word of God up to it and you say, oh, well, of course there's a God. I wouldn't be here without him. You know, nothing can, it can from nothing, nothing comes. Nothing can create everything. And so then you take the word of God and you bring it to light. Uh, you, you take the word of God and you expose those doubts. Uh, the next thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, illumines our minds to know the truth. The fear of the Lord leads to knowledge and wisdom. And if you remember, we talked about that in Ephesians, uh, to be enlightened, that the, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened when we did that devotional, uh, seeing things in our imagination, in our hearts, and then even supernaturally letting God give us dreams and visions, being open to that, because the Holy Spirit can illuminate those things. Uh, moving here to values and ethics, this is really simple. It's how we determine what is morally right and wrong, along with our obligations to do what is right. We also could put in there values of beauty, values of art, aesthetics, and, and all kinds of things. But just for simplicity here, we're just going to look at ethics. 
Ethics investigates such matters as good and evil, right and wrong. Like Christian metaphysics and epistemology, Christian ethics is distinctive. It belongs to us. Someone has to borrow it to critique it. Well, I have a problem with all the evil in the world. Well, where'd you get that problem from, right? You can't do that unless you're a Christian. Then you'll know right from wrong. Now through God's perspective, and then when you see all the problems, then you see a problem solver. If you don't see the problem solver and all you have is a problem of evil, you're a walking contradiction because you shouldn't have a problem with evil. The first thing you should say to an atheist who says, I have a problem with evil, say, that's your problem. Figure it out. We got the answer, the problem solver. Animals don't have a problem, right? Lions eat giraffes and monkeys eat squirrels and uh, alligators will eat their own young after a certain amount of time, right? Well, no problem for them. Why do you have a problem? Ah, oh, got to go to your metaphysics. Got to investigate epistemology. Got to look at the triune nature of our God. Got to look at why you're a moral creature. And so God is perfectly good and just. That's where we get our Christian ethics from. As Lord, he is, as we have seen, the supreme authority over his creatures, under epistemology, we saw that God is the supreme criterion of truth and falsehood. Once again, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Under ethics, we must observe that God is also supreme. He's the supreme standard of what is good and evil, right and wrong, and he has expressed his standards in his words to us. And so you might ask the question, what if we would not have eaten from the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Would we have learned it through Christ? And I believe we would have. We would have learned it without experience, just like you can learn about drug addiction without having to do it. One of the best things we can do with our children is uh, have a way to expose them to sin, but in a controlled environment without them having to taste sin, but to see it and see its consequences. Since we believe that the fall of uh, angels has already happened by the time we're created, and there's a fallen angel in our garden, God probably would have told us all the stories about evil and, and all of those bad decisions those, those angels made, and we never would have had to experience it. Like the way I look at it, instead of the serpent bringing us death, we could have stomped on his head and put to death death itself. That might have been his last time to ever be around us ever again, and his angels might have been cast out as well. But uh, we took it upon ourselves to take this journey of the knowledge of good and evil and now we have to come back to God to have him separate it, you know, so it doesn't get all gray and muddy. And so what I do with my children is just gently bring them out street evangelizing. When I go to the inner city, I take them with me. I show them the crack addict. And I say that that person's acting that way because they're on drugs. Drugs are bad. I have to explain to them why there's poverty. Well, a lot of people here have been not working jobs and those who who can have haven't, you know, had enough to get out of this situation. And there's there's people here that are having children outside of wedlock, fathers. This man here selling drugs is not taking care of his children inside that house. And I explain those things to them. And I explain the same thing to them when I watch, uh, when we watch The Amazing Race and they go around the world and, and they have to do some stupid thing at some pagan temple. And I say, why is it always some pagan temple they have to do something at? In these shows, why don't they ever have to go do something godly, you know, go work in a homeless shelter or something? But uh, now they got to paint literally in India uh, the, the pink elephant of Ganesh with his, you know, multiple arms. And I got to teach my children the reason why people consider a man with multiple arms and an elephant head as a god is because they turned away from the living God. They suppressed the knowledge of God, made a god in a false image. 
made it out of stone and wood, whatever, and worshipped it instead of the true God. And that's why their country is the way it is. That's why our Christian missionaries had to go there and help them. I tell them that all the time. I tell them why we had to go to war. Do you know why your great-grandpa had to go to war? My dad's dad had to go to war because there was wicked people who believed in Marxism, wicked people who followed false ideologies. And you teach them and you introduce them to that. And God does that with us through spiritual growth. The Bible says those who are mature know the difference between good and evil in Hebrews, don't they? Unbelievers, we are told, know not only of God's existence, but also of his standards and his requirements. You see how popular Romans is here? It keeps coming back up, Romans chapter 1. Yet they disobey those laws and further seek to evade that responsibility. Lastly, but not least, of course, in our worldview is the gospel. The good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection Christianity is not just an alternative to the secular philosophies or a set of moral standards better than those of current society or even other religions. It is gospel good news. In respect to this, it is unique, a genuine alternative to the conventional ways of thinking. Scripture teaches that human beings made in God's image sinned against God, and we bear the guilt of Adam's first sin, and the weight of our sin against God is death. And so our problem, therefore, is not finite, uh, as, as what some people may think. So we have a big problem. The solution is not for us to become God and try to become one with the universe. No, it's our chief problem is to be found in a hereditary environment, emotional makeup, nor is it found rather in, in our family heritage, environment, emotional problems, poverty, sickness. This is called the social gospel. We'll just fix everybody's roof and get them medicine. Well, you can go to hell, uh, you know, without... Uh, you can go to hell with a full belly and a roof over your head, in other words, and technology in your home, right? Rather, the problem is sin, willful transgression of God's law. According to Scripture, existing evils of all of these things exist because of sin. And so what is the solution? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus died for our sins and we're raised and was raised for our justification. And so the scriptural directive is not for us to work harder to achieve God's favor, but to accept God's mercy through Christ as a free gift. Wow, a lot was said there. Let's just look at it real quick and review. What is the foundation of the presuppositional apologist message? It's the Bible and our Christian worldview, our Christian philosophy. What is another way of describing what we mean by Christian philosophy? our worldview, and what are the four components of the Christian worldview? Briefly describe each one. It's the gospel, our value and ethics, epistemology, and our metaphysics. I'm going to fix these notes right here and open it up for discussion. Let's start with Juan. Looked like he got a little stirred up there with the, uh, the Calvinism thing. Go ahead, brother. But all that I ask is that we keep it towards presuppositional apologetics because we're not in a soteriology class, and I, and I don't want us to get uh, distracted. I can talk to you afterward, okay? So thank you. So you said we're synergists, um, but we can also be the other one, too, because we're not doing anything to contribute to our salvation. We're just not resisting God's grace. We yeah, and, well, yes, but according to their definition, I'll give it to them that we're synergists. Yeah. Some, yeah, some of the... Uh, the non-Calvinists will argue that point with him, but I have no problem giving it to them. Yeah. Anything else? 
Anything else good, brother? No. Yeah, we, th what they do, and you know this because we've talked about it, is the Calvinists attribute to us, when they, when, when they say synergism, what they mean is that we think we're contributing to our own salvation. And what you're saying is absolutely correct. We're just receiving the gift, and they're conflating the issue. And I love the way Leighton Flowers brought it out. The, the choice for the father to forgive the prodigal son's sins was absolutely his choice. It was his means. It was his desire. It was all on him. But then he allowed the son to come home as the son made his choice. So the idea is the father makes the choice to who to save and how to save and what salvation will be. But in his plan, he said, I will allow you to receive or reject me. And so when the prodigal son comes home, the prodigal son is not saved because he came home. He still deserved to be punished, horse whipped and put out into the slave, uh, the servants quarters. He didn't deserve any of the things he, he was given. That was all the gift of, of the father. And so we, when we talk to the Calvinists and they say to us, what separates you from the lost person? And we say, well, we believed and they didn't. And then they say, isn't believing a good work? And the Bible says you're not saved by good works. We say, no, the father said, this is all that I require is that you believe. And in Romans, it differentiates between faith and works. What men cannot do to be saved is work the works of the law or of morality or of religion to be saved, but they must believe in God. And that work, if they would call it that, a work, is an obedience that the Bible says Abraham believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So it's not a work of the law. It's not a work of morality earning salvation. It is an obedient they can call it work if they want, but it's an act of obedience, as the Bible calls it, and it is accredited to the person as righteousness, meaning if they did not do it, it would be unrighteous in their fault. So without having that worldview, and I put the arguments there from William Lane Craig, we make God the author to be the author of evil, or you just have to say evil doesn't exist, etc. And so I put a lot of that in there, but does that help answer your question, One. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit. Yeah. I know I went a little deeper. Okay. Anybody else? Questiones. Don't be shy. Don't be shy today, guys, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. I just fixed the notes from uh, the website. So the notes are all good now. Let me see if we have any questions here on the page. Oh. Okay, go ahead. Was somebody going to say something? No? So, a worldview, like, what would you be, like, the worldview, shaping your worldview on the yeah. Bible and not false beliefs, it's always, should be always grounded by Scripture, right? Because you said apply to their needs. And you, when somebody's dealing with something, you apply that area of Scripture, the whole council of Scripture, to that particular person, meaning of the person's where they are, so it's like what Paul said, um, you know, to a Jew, I was a Jew, to the Gentile, I was a Gentile, to, and et cetera. Yeah. 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 The worldview is, is the foundation for everything we do, and we apply it to our um, 
people or our ministry environment in a way that's acceptable or communicated in such a way that that can produce good fruit. Okay, well, guys, let's go into some discussion now. I got some great videos. Uh, I think you guys are doing well. I'm going to see in just a moment after I play some of these videos, I'll ask you guys some questions. But uh, it seems like now coming into our third lesson, you guys have really maybe worked out some of the things that you guys were dealing with before, because I know some of the questions were like, how do we do uh, this with Christians or other religions or what, what is really the approach that we're taking here? And I'm glad that you guys have got that foundation because it really gets more now into the, uh, the practical nature of doing this. And one of the things that I appreciated about Dr. Frame's uh, video, we won't listen to it today. I'll just put it up for extra uh, if you guys want to do that, was that he said, if someone came to me and said, because uh, they asked him, how would you use evidence as a presuppositionalist? And he said, if someone came up to me and he actually said this happened to him, said, man, I, I'm loving what you guys are saying. I am like so uh, close to uh, becoming a Christian. You know, uh, what, what is some evidence to me that I can look at to really know that Christ raised from the dead? And uh, he said, at that point, I would be just like everybody else. Josh McDowell, the classical approach, the evidential approach, whatever. He said, I'm, I'm going to go right into the scriptures and give them evidence because that's what the Bible commands us to do. He says, but now let's say I've given them the evidence for the resurrection. Or, or if someone asked him the question, you know, why is there so much evil? And, and, you know, then he answers the question, well, here's the reason why there's evil. But then they kick back and they say, well, you know, I, I don't believe that Jesus could erase from the dead because I don't think supernatural things can happen. Or I don't like the answer you said about, you know, how God gave us choice and we made the wrong choice. and That's why there's evil. He says that's when he would go right back into the presupposition because he would say, who are you, old man, to judge God? Why are you now saying there can't be these things? And so I thought that was encouraging because you don't need to jump into every single conversation going, how do you know what you know? Do you know that you could be wrong about everything? And what are your presuppositions? Oftentimes, my conversations are going towards either the nominal believer, the lukewarm Christian, you know, the seeker. And so I generally don't need to go into uh, presuppositional apologetics as the argument until they resist what I'm giving to them as God's word and God's worldview. But you can stay right in the Bible, and that's why many of you have been effective and not necessarily attacking their presuppositions so often. Uh, you've been effective is because you're using the word of God. You're already doing what the Bible tells us to do. But where presuppositionalist uh, uh, presuppositional apologetics is helpful is when somebody kicks back and then now says, I want more uh, proof. I want more evidence, and I don't buy that. Well, then you say, well, I think you don't even understand where you're coming from now. Let me help evaluate your worldview. Okay, so let's do some worldview videos and then have some discussions, and uh, we'll address them as they come up. I'm going to start off with the one. Um, that uh, uh, what's uh, Daryl said that he watched, and I think this one will be good. Let me make sure I got the right one here. Is this the right one? And so you yeah. have okay, so we'll watch this one and then discuss it right when it's over here. It's about three minutes long, so get ready for some discussion. And so you have to have what is called a biblical worldview. 
a biblical worldview. The first century church had a biblical worldview. Okay, I'm going to need your attention now because we're going to go uh, we're going to go to religion class for just a moment. Okay, and so let me show you something. This is a chart. What is worldview? Worldview is very important that you understand what this means. Here is worldview. Worldview is simply what is real. You look at the center of this chart right here. What is real? That is worldview. And what is real determines what you know to be true. That's your beliefs. Okay, and what it you know to be true, that determines what is good or what is important to you. That's your values. And some of you are taking a picture. That's a great move. Feel free to take a picture. Uh, it's on the website though. And I just tweeted it out. And so this is out there. You can grab it lots of different places. Uh, what is true determines what you think is good. What you think is good determines, ready, 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 what you do your behavior. If you jump down to the bottom, you see your worldview determines your beliefs, which determines your values, which determines your behavior. Okay, you're confused. Let me, let me bring this down some. You ready? If you have a worldview that says this is all there is, you live and you die. You're a naturalist, if you will. Uh, you have a worldview that says this world is what is most important. This world. Then that's going to determine what you know to be true. What is true? It's, it's that I need to live this short life as much as I possibly can. So what do you value? You value safety and comfort. And so then what do you behave like? You behave like safety and comfort are ultimate. You pray all the time for safety and comfort because you have a perspective that this world is all there is. Here's what this means. Some of you are here. You claim to be a Christian, a Christ follower, but the reality of it is just your worldview at the center, underneath your beliefs, actually is, is more one influenced by culture than the Bible. Here, here's, let me prove it. Let me prove it. Okay. If you take the Bible and you put this in that center ring and you say, I want a biblical worldview. Okay. Then what is true is there's God. He has a kingdom. He's going to restore his kingdom here. I'm playing a small part in that narrative. Then, so what is good is his glory. Entering and you say, I want a God's biblical glory. worldview. So then we behave okay? in such then a way what is true that is the most God. thing is God's glory. So then we share the gospel everywhere we go. We pray for the lives of others. We pray that we would be bold and we live like we have a biblical worldview. If you did not pray for revival this week, every day, on the regular, you don't have a prayer problem. You have a worldview problem. If the sum of most of your prayers are for safety and protection and comfort. You don't have a prayer problem. You have a worldview problem. You've forsaken the reality that this world is temporary. Your life is expendable. You will live forever somewhere. That's what is ultimate. God and his glory. Now your worldview pros. Take it. Teach it to others. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's do a little discussion here. I appreciate everybody uh, being attentive today. So let's go to Ashley. So Ashley, let's say you're at your job, and we're going to take the idea of what we're learning today, the message of the apologists. We're presuppositional apologists, talking about worldview, how we're going to present the Bible and the way we see the world to others. So let's not use your profession uh, as the, as the example, but just say you're working any kind of job, you're whatever you can put yourself as a person working in the mall and your coworker says, uh, Hey, I looked at your Facebook the other day and I noticed, uh, you know, you're a youth worker. 
and uh, you're doing stuff with teenagers. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And then they say to you, well, what are you doing to help the teenagers that are suffering depression, committing suicide because they don't know how to accept uh, that they're maybe born a different gender? Uh, they've got to come out to their parents and their parents may reject them. This is a real problem with teenagers right now. I saw a documentary on MTV about this coming out. And uh, how are you helping teenagers to do this? Uh, what would you say to that person who, who asked you that question? Well, I would tell them what I would be doing um, would be, I would tell the youth what the truth is. And the truth is, God's plan for them, what God created them to be. Okay, so let's do a little role play. Oh, man, so you're actually part of the ones that, that make it harder for them? So you're going to tell them not to be gay? Why would you do that? Their blood will be on your hands, and if they hurt themselves? <laughs> Come on, think it through. I know some of you are jumping at it. I can see the, the facial expressions. You want, to, you want to work with her now. You want to be on the job with this coworker. But Ashley, sit on it just for a few more moments before I meet with someone. I'll go to someone else. I want you to sit on this. What are you going to say back? Well, my first, I'll go off of the first thing that I want to say is that the idea of that, that they're gay, that they're transgender, that that was a choice that they made. No, they didn't. That wasn't a choice. They were born that way. I knew that I was going to get caught up in that. What are you, well, let's, let's just ask Yuli, your husband, and all love and respect. Yuli, what is she not doing right now? And why is what she's doing not working? I would say uh, she needs to attack more of that person's worldview. And do it with what? Uh, with uh, uh, pre-establishment apologetic. Well, what is the foundation of that? Uh, the, the scripture and, uh, no, and, and well, plan the scripture, right? Say the scripture says that uh, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. So therefore, the person that saying that born is, is gay, well, first of all, no one is born gay. God has created everybody with a DNA and a gender, a male and female, to be uh, be married, not to be uh, uh, to be gay. To be gay. So I will go just about that, just destroying the worldview and pointing at something that it's folly. That is, that's not what's what okay. Good. So let's take it up from there. So you're going to bring up the scripture now. You're going to say the Bible says what? What are you going to say? That everyone has fallen short of glory to God. Okay, so we're all sinners. Why are you treating them any different? Don't you help children who have other problems? You know, why, don't, why, why are you judging these kids? Don't you have problems? Don't you have issues? <laughs> um, wow, does anybody else want to chime in right now before I give some more answers? But this is exactly the message of the apologist. Who wants to take it up? Me. Okay, go ahead, Juan. What I'll say is how the I will go question his morality um, because he has no sense of morality at all. Be like, okay. how do you know what's right and wrong? What about murder? Who are you to say? And I will go back to the Bible, show that God is the moral lawgiver. Yeah. And that because he gave law, 
he is the one that does make defines it and you cannot redefine even people with the same sex marriage with the the, the author of the message bible saying yeah. that there he cannot redefine marriage because God already defined marriage in Genesis. Okay, so let's go with that. Sorry to interrupt, but just to save time, let's go on this so we can get to another video. So uh, you just said all of that. Now they say back, well, I just don't agree with you. You know what? All of us have our own opinions about different things, and you have yours, and I have mine, and I just don't think it's right for you to do that. I I think more churches need to be more open-minded and not be as harsh as you're being. It's like... I'll ask them, where's your standard of morality? Good question. Um, uh, you know what? I think all humans are born knowing basic right and wrong, and then we have to discover what works best for us. That's that's my belief. Okay. Who gave where the consciousness or conscience come from? You don't know because the Bible tells you where it came from. The Bible says that it was evident within them. He put eternity in your hearts. Yeah, well, all these other religions say their God gave it to me. So why don't we all just agree that we have it and let's move on and make the world a better place? <laughs> That's very funny. Well, but literally yeah. today I heard Apologia Radio <laughs> discussing with a person from Vice uh, was doing an interview. You know, those Vice documentary guys, you'll see them on YouTube and stuff. And that's literally what he said to Jeff as he was doing the presuppositional approach. Okay, so what are you going to say? We All religions tell me I got a conscience from their God. Well, let's just all agree with that, meet on neutral ground, and now let's go forward and make the world a better place and let gays do what they want to do and you do what you want to do. And if you're going to work with young people, you should help them be the best young people they can be, even if you don't always agree with what their decisions are. And this is the thing is um, absolute morality. You're, you're just saying that morality is relative and if morality is relative. Then there is no need for crime. There's no need for, for the rapist morality. You could just say he can be the best rapist. He can be the best murderer. He can be the best abortionist. He can well, be Juan, the best don't you know murderer. that murdering somebody is wrong? We all know murdering somebody's <laughs> wrong. But is it wrong for two people to love each other of the same gender? Tell me where that's obvious that that's wrong. You murder somebody, they're bleeding. You take from somebody, they don't have anything. What are these two people doing to you? What are they doing to hurt each other? They just love each other, and they've done nothing wrong. It's not obvious to me, and I got a conscience, and you got a conscience. So God must have made my conscience better than yours because I can see the beauty in that. Well, let me tell you what Romans 1 says. See, there you go. Let's just pause there. Do you see now? You, you have to move just out of dancing with them philosophically. The word of God will do its job. And the faster, the sooner you get there, you start letting them know you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God. And he was doing well. And I, I think he did really good, actually. And you just keep pushing it back and you hold their their worldview to the, the theological fire, you know? So he's going to go to Romans 1 and say that, and, and then maybe the person will say back, well, I just don't agree with that. And then he needs to go right back to where he was before. Suppressing the truth. Exactly. Say that again? Suppressing the truth. Yes, yeah, so that's what I thought. I want to make sure I heard it right. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the suppressing of the truth, it's going to become obvious when he starts saying they're not consistent in their worldview. So, for example, how do we know that uh, – uh, rape is wrong. 
So he may say, well, because the other person doesn't want it and it's obvious, but you know what? How do we know that it's wrong? And it's just not uh, good for society, whatever, because what if there's a society where rape turns out good? Like the more we rape people, the more children we have, the children grow up stronger, become greater warriors. We take over more land, whatever, you know, kind of like a Mayan empire. The more we rape and pillage, the better we are at suppressing the other Native Americans, whatever. And so you have to get them to hold to what is their standard of absolute morality. And it's going to have to be, I, you know, in this scenario, the person's going to be, well, I just think that. And then that's when you show them, well, it doesn't matter what you think. Your opinion doesn't make what's right. Okay. So let's watch another video, have a little bit more discussion. I like the interaction here. This is how, hopefully how more of the class can be because it's going to be more practical now that we have like uh, these, these foundations already built. This one came from the Truth Project. We did it in our church. It's a great Truth Pro. It's a great uh, small group lesson series. It has some of the heavy hitters out there today in apologetics. Uh, let's watch this real quick. This is Sasha. Oop, that's the introduction one that I had today for the class. Anybody watch about Sasha? Did anybody watch that one? No, that's kind of where I got the idea for today's thing. You know, it's a it's a kind of a sassy. Uh, no, no, it's ex the girl's actually the Christian, but the guy's not. So, anyways, it was a good one. Okay, here we go. Here's the Truth Project. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, it is, a good, is it a good one or a bad one? A worldview is a set of basic assumptions that, make you, that help you make sense about reality, or it's a set of basic uh, assumptions about reality. A worldview is like a lens through which you see things, and you're not really aware of the lens, you're only aware of the things you see. So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter, through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. On the basis of that worldview, you make your momentary judgments in life. So everyone has a worldview. And I think it is the grid that frames the nature of reality for you and the judgments that you make for yourself and others in life. There's a proverb that says, as a man thinketh, so shall he act, or so is he depending on the translation. And our thinking really does govern the way we act, uh, the choices we make. There are ideas that have consequences. And our culture is shaped, first of all, by distorted ideas that yield distorted lives. All the non-Christian worldviews, whether they're atheistic or religious, are alternatives that are basically a refusal to bow to the truth as God sees it. If you don't have a Christian worldview, if you don't understand the doctrine whereby God is sovereignly involved in every aspect of your life, then you have no basis for stability, no basis for morality, no basis for hope, and as the Apostle Paul said, we become pitiable creatures. And when we do not understand or know the truth claims of God, we take the truth claims of the world as if they're true. And when we live according to the to the lies and the illusions of the world, then we suffer deeply. 
God wants us to see the world the way He told us it is. Everything begins with an infinite personal God, and the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. Whether we're talking about sociology, we're talking about anthropology, we're talking about science or history, law or politics, economics, it does not matter. You can trust that God has given to us the framework of truth from which we can stand upon and live. That's the secret of freedom. That's the secret of humanness. That's the secret of fulfillment. It is the truth of who God is. And it is the trust that He really is who He says He is. And that His truth claims are really real. You can trust them with your very life and your very soul. I am convinced that that is exactly what truly transforms people. And you will find it to be uh, one of the most glorious moments in your life. Wow. Amen. All right, so let's just have a little discussion for maybe some that have not spoken up yet. Uh, Rachel, in the last few moments that we have class here, what would be some lies that you see in our culture that people believe through their worldview and don't even think about it? Like, it's a lie according to God, but they think it's as true as the sky is blue. Rachel, you have to unmute. I'm so sorry. Um, my phone was delayed for a little bit. Can you just repeat the question for me? Okay. Let me go to someone else for the sake of time. That's okay. Uh, Daryl, would you answer that question, please? Um, okay. There we are. Um, uh, I would say uh, that uh, uh, Trinitarianism, uh, that, okay. that, that the Trinity doesn't exist, maybe that, uh, so uh, not Trinitarianism, rather uh, Unitarianism. Yep. That there's not a Trinity. Mm -hmm. The Bible is clear about that. Okay, uh, so they wouldn't believe in that. What's another lie that people believe? Um, that... Uh, uh, depression is a form of a disease, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't think the Bible says that it's a disease. Uh, yeah. So there are certain mental illnesses that are attached to the mind, not just the body. Yeah. Okay. What else? Um, uh, let's see. Come up with one more. Maybe um, that there is no God. Okay. And then other people think there's no God. Okay, good. Thank you. Now, Chris, why don't you answer those three objections? Take any one in order that you would like to answer and go ahead and give us a reason to believe the truth as opposed to the lie. Okay. Uh, AD, can, uh, maybe uh, just name off one for me just so I can hit one. Okay. Okay, let me go to Rachel and see if she caught that for the sake of time. Rachel, did you hear what uh, Daryl had said were his three things? Yes, I did. Okay, go ahead. Um, I think the first one I remember that there is no God. Yeah. Um, we would have to, how would I would answer that would be, then how are we even thinking right now? How are we having this intelligible conversation 
where who started it all can can nothing create something right yep. and that that's would be good yeah mm-hmm. let's just go right there for a second so you meet somebody like that they're they're going to say well maybe we don't know that uh nothing can't create something because we've never seen nothing so what would you say back to that they said well we've never seen nothing we don't know the power of nothing right um well i would talk about their irrational faith though because they weren't there either <laughs> So yeah, exactly. Nothing, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to see if you would catch it without me laughing. But there's actually people who have said that and on an apologetic website, he actually took a screenshot of it. They were like, well, how do you know nothing can't create something? Have you ever seen it? And the guy goes, do you talk about irrational? I mean, it's just silly, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So then maybe they'll say, well, you know what? Okay. There's a God, but I don't think he's your God. Maybe he's one God. And he's left us here to figure things out. And all religion is, is people trying to figure it out. And we just got to take the best out of each one of them, kind of like an Oprah style of buffet religion. And I'm going to take a little bit from Christianity, love thy neighbor. I'm going to take a little bit here from, uh, from Hinduism, karma, you know, what goes around, comes around, reincarnation. So to you, your belief, to me, my belief, let's call it a day. Let's, let's go on. What would you say to that? I would say that um, that there there is the ultimate truth, you know, uh, there is a right and a wrong. And who defines that is scripture, the word of God. It goes and tells us what truth is because he's the author of truth. He's author of knowledge. So if we want to find out what truth is, then we have to go to the word of God. Amen. How do you know it's the word of God? There's a lot of people out there that say they have the word of God. Well, because he says it, because <laughs> he said okay. it's the word of God. If well, God they say true, it's then... the word of God, too. I mean, I'll show you right here in the Quran. He says this is the word of God. Um, well, I would go to the evidences of the word, like the, um, the prophecies, the, the validation for the word of God and, and why we can believe that those words are true. Yeah, that's good. We would say we do have evidence for ours being the word of God when lined up to their book. So we would say to the person who just throws that out as an excuse, well, are you a Muslim? They go, well, no, I'm not a Muslim. Well, then why are you even using that as your excuse? Well, I'm just saying all of you guys say the same thing, so I don't want to pick any of you. Well, just because there's a million infinity, really, infinite uh, amount of wrong answers for two plus two doesn't mean there isn't one right answer. So let's look for the right answer. And I'm more than willing, and I say this to people, I say I'm more than willing to meet with the Muslim and the Quran with you there, and you can examine where the truth lies, because I don't think they have the truth. But now until then, let me talk to you about the gospel. And that's what I want to bring up to you guys, is remember to always go to the gospel. The gospel is also a part of our apologetics. Jesus came, died on the cross, raised from the dead. The problem of evil. How are your sins going to be atoned for? Have you made mistakes in life? In your conscience, do you know you've done things that you shouldn't have done? How are those things going to be atoned for? If what I'm saying is right, you're going to face judgment for that. No other religion gives you the hope that we have given you. And uh, Daryl said some other things, but I honestly don't think they're as, as popular as, as, as the one. I'm glad you picked out the one about God. Uh, the other thing that he said was about the Trinity. I don't know how many people are walking around doubting it, but those aren't going to be the major issues. I think a lot of people are doubting uh, whether or not they're sinners. I think people are doubting whether or not there's a moral code, so forth and so on. And so I think you guys need to learn how to uh, come up, come at the things that are the idols of their heart, the things that are the most important to them, 
and learn to address them so that they can hear the answer. Uh, so thank you very much, Rachel, and uh, for what you guys have been doing here. We have three minutes left in class. Of course, I'll stay 15 minutes after for any questions you guys may have on a more personal or practical level. But uh, anything right now from our discussions, the videos that anybody would like to bring up, we probably have one more uh, time for one, uh, one more comment or question. Jesus is the truth. What's that? That's the reality. I'm sorry. Could Jesus. you say the first thing again, please? Jesus is our, our truth. Is the first word you're saying Jesus? Yeah, Jesus okay. is our truth. Amen. That's what is all truth. Amen. So if somebody says to you, how do you know Jesus is truth? What are you going to say? Because in the, I would show Colossians 1 that all things came through him and everything came from God and everything exists within God. Yeah, but I can show you Cat in the Hat and he uh, has an egg and uh, he likes to eat a green <laughs> eggs and ham. You know, I mean, what 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 is that going to prove? I don't believe that book. I mean, that's that's your opinion. You're me in the image of God. Um, some of the, um, in Jesus, all things exist with him. The reason why we exist is because we came we came from him. And let's just say in that scripture, I don't have it with me, but it says from him, through him, and in him. I think you're doing good right there. But once again, attack their presupposition. Say right. without without but, the Bible's knowledge of being sustained, without the, the, the knowledge I'm giving you from the Bible that God sustains all truth and existence, how do you have truth? How do you know truth, right? So yeah. you guys got to learn to be quick on your feet. It's okay here. We're practicing. Yeah. So the idea is... When they say the accusation, everybody understands. We'll, we'll talk about this more in the future. And by the way, remember when I said that I was going to uh, bring up the different levels of apologetics, uh, the different differences? I'm going to do that next week with classical and evidentialists, et cetera. And it would be good for you guys if you want to do for Lanyap to listen to John Frame. But uh, Juan, we can talk more about this in just a moment. But let me close out the class here. Maybe I'll just have you close this out in prayer. But the thing that I want you to know is the is the defense tactics, the block and jab, the defense yeah. and the attack. And so what you guys need to learn to do is when you're hearing someone say something to you, you're listening well, not just coming up with your response, but you're listening. And then as you're listening, you're saying, Holy Spirit, guide me to give them the words of truth and to take down what they have said is error because we don't want them to believe a lie. You know, so two plus two is five. No, it's not. Two plus two is four. Oh, no, it's five. No, it's not. Watch me count it. One, two, you know, and that's the way you want to do it. Uh, you know, I have my truth. You have your truth. Well, if we can both have contradictory truths, how are we true? That's not even according to the word of truth. We're contradicting each other. Do you believe in the law of contradiction? Oh, yeah, it kind of makes sense. And then you say, because God is truth, there's no contradiction. God can't lie. So you want to defend. Think of a shield, sword, shield, sword. That is Christian apologetics. That's what uh, Jesus was doing. Uh, with that, guys, please stay after. Let me say a few words to the class before you go. You don't have to say the whole 15 minutes, but let's have Juan close this out in prayer. Uh, go ahead, brother. Dear Lord, I just pray, Lord, that um, we will be apologetics. I pray that we will defend and attack the enemies of the lie, and I just pray that we will use your word, Lord, 
what it says in your word says it is written that we will speak what you you said and not doubt but to always reach the truth lord and i just pray lord we live in a world of lies but let us be speaker of truth in jesus name amen amen